This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Well, good morning to you. It's good to be back with you again. Uh, If you weren't here last time I got the opportunity to preach, my name is Josh Preston. I'm a pastoral resident over at Second Presbyterian Church, and uh, Matt and the, the elders were kind enough to give me the opportunity to come and, and be with you this summer, and I've uh, very much enjoyed that so far. I'm humbled by that opportunity. Uh, I got to bring my wife with me this time. She was back home with a, a sick son last time, but my wife Alyssa is here with me today, uh, the better half of the duo for sure. Uh, we're continuing along in our uh, study of the book of Philippians this morning. So if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. You've no doubt uh, noticed as we've studied this book together that one of the, uh, the dominant themes of Philippians is joy. Uh, Paul has been repeating this, this command and this idea of rejoice, rejoice over and over And you likely know, uh, if you've followed the Lord for any time, that joy, at least in a biblical sense, is to be distinguished from mere happiness. Joy is much more deeply rooted in greater realities uh, than happiness, which is simply an emotion tied to circumstance. And so, for instance, Paul is able to say something like, uh, I'm in prison, I'm being persecuted, and yet I rejoice in the Lord because I have this greater purpose for which he's using me. He's able to say that I rejoice in the Lord uh, even when I uh, try to imitate the mind of Christ in counting others as greater than myself. It's that paradox of joy, of living for others rather than ourselves. And today, I think joy in our passage might be most closely related with the idea of rest. Rest in the sense that uh, we are able to rest from that oppressive need to define ourselves, to prove ourselves, and to prove our worth in this life. If you find yourself doing that at any point like I often do, this passage is certainly for you. Uh, if, if you're able, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word. Philippians 3, chapter, starting at uh, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we study your word. Would you take the truth of the gospel and apply it in a way that only you can, far beyond what I'm able to apply to my brothers and sisters here this morning, to those intimate places of our hearts that need the grace of your gospel desperately, like cool water on a hot day. Father, would you refresh us again with your word? In Jesus' name, amen. You've probably, or you're probably familiar with the story of Eric Little giving up uh, what was almost a sure gold medal for him in the 1924 Olympic Games. One of the trial heats was on a Sunday, and he had a very strict conviction not to run on the Sabbath, and so he, he refused to run. One of the men who took his place in that heat was a man named Harold Abrams. In fact, if you've seen that film, Chariots of Fire, you're familiar with him. He was also intent on winning a gold medal, and the film uh, follows Abrams as he trains, gives everything he's got to win that gold medal. He's out rain or shine, uh, late at night, early in the morning, every single day, intent on this one thing is getting that gold medal. His whole life was wrapped up in that pursuit. He did barely sneak into the final heat, and in the hours leading up to it, he's not excited, he's not anticipating victory, He's afraid. He's terrified. He's reflecting on that with a friend named Aubrey. This is what he says. Do you remember when we first bumped into each other? We shared a taxi, remember? You made me feel an age-old, burdened, sour, even superior. That was the miscalculation of my life. You, Aubrey, are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret, contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, yet I don't know what it is that I'm chasing. And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes, look down that corridor, four feet wide, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Aubrey, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. Ten lonely seconds to justify his whole existence. You and I might not put it in quite such severe terms as Harold Abrams, but we all deal with a very similar reality in life. It's just this. I am what I do. I am the sum of everything I'm able to achieve in this life. My background, my education, my family, my friends, my job, my successes, my failures, all that is added together to give me an identity. And because that's the case for us, we exert all of our energy, all of our resources to attain an identity that, that we want. Paul is also exerting himself fully in this passage. He says he wants to gain one thing and he'll go to 
any means possible to get it. And for Paul, it's that he might gain Christ and be found in him. Found in him. How do you want to be found? When a friend comes in town that you haven't seen in a while, what do you want them to think about you? How do you want others to perceive you? Maybe you don't care what other people think. Maybe it's just satisfying your own inner aspirations like it is for me. Whatever it is, it might look different for all of us. Some of us pour ourselves into our work to get it. Some of us into our families, who we know, who likes us, who accepts us, our appearance. Whatever it is for you, it's that oppressive need to prove ourselves by what we do. And Paul comes to us in this passage. God the Father comes to us in this passage and says, you can be free from that oppressive way of living. Gives us a way out. Ultimately, what Paul shows us is that living that way is, is futile. It'll never get us what we want. And that true joy, rejoicing in the Lord, is by being found in Christ, gaining Christ and being found in him. If you want true joy, you must be found in Christ. The, the, the reason that he is so intent on warning these folks is because of this false teaching. It's, uh, we can perceive it just from looking at the text here. It's that these Jewish people were telling that these new converts to Christianity that they had to be circumcised in order to be accepted into the community of faith, in order to be saved, essentially. And this is not a new concern in Scripture by any means. Paul's written about this in Galatians. We see it come up in Acts 15. And in each of those places, Paul speaks very, very strongly against it, which should show us the prevalence of it, should prove to us that it's also very prevalent in our lives. It's a, it's a very imminent danger for each of us. We're all prone to go back to this way of living. We're all prone to base our acceptance before God and other people on what we do. And, you know, our, it's the dominant narrative of our culture also. If you are on social media at all or advertising, every single message that comes at us throughout our week is that you're not enough. You need this to be enough. You need this friend to be accepted. You need this connection. You need this job. That's the, the message that comes at us day after day. It's repeated over and over. So Paul speaks strongly against it. And what he does is he says that living that way is actually totally counterproductive. It's anti-gospel, so to speak. Living this way, defining ourselves by what we do, is totally counterproductive. And he's very clever the way he goes about it. So if you look at verses 2 and 3, he says, look out three times. He's issuing a warning. And then Paul uses some fighting words. He's, he's calling names here. He's holding no punches. But he contrasts these words, these names that he's calling these false teachers, with the true identity of these Christians he's writing to. And so he says, look out for the dogs. You know, the Jewish people use the term dogs in a derogatory way against Gentiles who were not part of the church. Look out for the dogs. He's saying they're actually the dogs, and we are the circumcision. We being emphasized in the original here. He could just say we're Christians, but he wants, he wants to prove the point where they're, where they're um, t 
teaching it by saying we're actually the circumcision, we're the community of faith, and they're the outsiders. He does another reversal. He calls them evil workers. You know, these people would have kept the law to the T and thought that they were doing works of righteousness. He's, he calls them evil workers because they think that by those works they're gaining acceptance. In contrast, Christians are those who worship by the Spirit. The Spirit is the only one who's able to make our works acceptable to God. Otherwise, like Isaiah tells us, they're just filthy rags. And then finally, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. They think that by circumcision, they are gaining acceptance before God and other people in the community. And he's saying, that's not the case. So you're essentially just mutilating the flesh. In contrast, we don't glory in that status. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. In fact, Paul gives us an illustration in Scripture with his own life of this reality, this, this counterproductive way of living, this anti-gospel. When he's relating his conversion to Christ in Acts 26, he says that, that the Lord Jesus came to him and said, Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Goad being that, that long stick with a pointed end that uh, workers would have used to drive the cattle. And the cattle would kick against it to try to get free, but they'd kick that sharp end and it would bring them back into conformity. Totally counterproductive. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Maybe you feel that like I often do, that kicking against the goads, that exhaustion, that I'm so tired of living this way, but I'm going to wake up on Monday morning and I'm going to start right back over of living that perfect week, of performing this week. And of course, we've blown it by Wednesday, and we're going to start back over next week again, right? It's kicking against the goads. It's totally counterproductive. But Paul's not done. He says, let's just for the sake of the argument, let's take your argument to its logical conclusion. So let's take my resume, he says, and he lists out these seven different characteristics about his own life. We might uh, simplify these and put them under two categories. The first four we could call reputation or identity. He says, I'm of Israel. I'm not a convert to this. I'm of an elite tribe, Benjamin, the only one that stayed with Judah when the kingdom split. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I haven't assimilated to the Greek culture. I'm, I, I know the language. I still live, live according to the customs. Um, and I was circumcised on the eighth day, just as he was supposed to be. If it's, if it's up to reputation, Paul has it all. But see, even our reputation, even our identity before people is hopelessly fragile. It'll, it's, it's only as good as other people's perception of it, of us. Our reputation is only as good as other people's perception of us. Uh, in his very helpful book, uh, Perfecting Ourselves to Death, Richard Winter tells the story of a man named Vince Foster. Uh, Foster uh, went to law school. He was at uh, the top of his class. He got the best score on the bar exam in the state of Arkansas. He graduated, and his whole career was one success after another. He was eventually litigating uh, and advising uh, the President of the United States during the Clinton administration. And he was so successful that they, they invited him to come back and give the commence, commencement address for the University of Arkansas Law School. And this was his advice to those aspiring lawyers. 
The reputation you develop for intellectual and ethical integrity will be your greatest asset or your worst enemy. There is no victory, no advantage, no favor, which is worth even a blemish on your reputation for intellect and integrity. Dents to the reputation in the legal profession are irreparable. A few years later, the Wall Street Journal released an editorial calling into question these very things for Foster because of his role in the Clinton administration. And in despair, he took his own life. His, his reputation had been tarnished irreparably, and he said so in the note that he left. Our identity, our reputation, is only as good as other people's perception of us, and so it's hopelessly fragile. Paul goes on to talk about his performance. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I keep rules beyond the rules. As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. We read in Acts that when Stephen was stoned, Saul, Paul, then Saul, was standing by giving his approval. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is probably less a statement of his own sinlessness and more a statement of the fact that he's just kept all of the external customs. Paul has done it all. But even our performance is just as hopelessly fragile as our reputation and our identity because our performance is only as good as yesterday's success. We might have a great day the day before and then wake up the next morning and totally blow it. And so it's fragile. Be a great dad yesterday with my son and then wake up this morning and lose my temper. It's all lost. Our performance is only as good as yesterday's success. Paul is showing us in this first part of this passage that a life lived based on performance that gives us an identity is hopelessly futile. It'll leave us exhausted and dead. But Paul gives us hope. He says, I have all these things, but whatever I had that was gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He shows us the joy that we can have if we are found in Christ. And he shows us how to do it. And as a good pastor, he doesn't give us uh, new methods to try or strategies for doing this. He does give us two ways to respond, but they're totally counterintuitive to those of us who are achievers. He says, I want you to relinquish and receive. Relinquish anything that could be counted to your credit before God and receive the identity that Jesus freely gives you in the gospel. First, relinquish. He said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. And then he shifts to the present tense. Indeed, I count everything as loss. And so he's saying, when I became a Christian for the first time, I had to count it all loss in order to gain Christ. But I'm still doing so. It's a lifelong process of counting those things loss and counting Christ Jesus as much greater. It shows us that when we become Christians, we don't lose that performance mentality that we may have lived with in the past. In fact, I want to argue that it perhaps even becomes more pronounced once we become Christians. Because you think about it, when you become a Christian, everything about your life changes. The spirit in, in you sanctifies you. You sin less. You desire righteousness more. You become involved in different programs and activities. You serve other people. And so it's very easy for us when we do that to start to become impressed with ourselves and for other people to become impressed with us as well. And so we fall right back into that trap of defining who we are based on all the good works that we've done. 
And so for us, it's a lifelong process of waking up every day and counting all of those things as loss, as good as they may be, and counting Christ as much more. Every single day, counting and recounting. Paul then says, I, I counted it gain, but now I count it as loss. And he actually gets more intense as he goes. I counted it as loss. I counted everything as loss. And then he says, I counted it as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. He's intensifying it here. And I think what he's getting at, what he's saying, is that those things were not just bad things. They were actually hindering me from receiving the gospel. When we count our identity based on what we do, it actually hinders us from receiving the gospel. Because it's, it's just like this. We feel like we can't receive God's love until we can receive our own love. God can't be pleased with me until I'm pleased with myself. Until I fulfill my inner aspirations and feel like I've made myself acceptable to God, I might say that I'm saved by grace, but I'm not going to receive His love until I feel like I've really earned it. I've really got it. But we never get there, do we? Because we fail over and over and we're never satisfied with what we're able to achieve. And so we never, we never actually make it. The anecdote, Paul says, is to know Christ. I counted all those things rubbish so that I may know Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So let's, let's do this. Let's compare resumes. If we want to know who Christ is, Paul has given us his resume. And if we want to know Christ, let's compare his. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day, as was Jesus, Luke 2 tells us. Paul is of the tribe of Benjamin, an elite tribe, but Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews, and Jesus, though mockingly, was rightly called the king of the Jews at his crucifixion. Paul says he was a Pharisee with regard to the law, and Jesus in Matthew 5 says, I haven't come to abolish that law, I've come to fulfill it every dot and iota. Paul was zealous. Jesus had zeal for his father's house consumed him. Paul says he's blameless, and Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters, the only way that you and I will relinquish all the things that we feel like make us lovable and acceptable for God is if we see that we stand far inf uh, to gain infinitely more from Jesus Christ. The only way we can relinquish that identity we feel we've achieved is if we know for a fact that we stand to gain infinitely more from Jesus Christ. So we must give it up. Open our hands and give those things up. And then receive with those open hands. We can't receive things with a closed fist. Receive with those open hands the righteousness that depends on faith. Faith is not a work, not something we work up in ourselves. It's only in receiving. Faith is called a gift in Ephesians 2. It's only receiving that gift that we get that righteousness. It's essentially union with Christ. That's what Paul's getting at in these last two verses. Union with Christ. Notice how he says, he says, I want to know the, the power of his resurrection. That is the power that we lack to perfectly fulfill God's law. We find that when we're united to Christ. He gives us what we need to obey his will for our lives. 
suffering and death. I want to know him in his suffering and his death. A person intent on achieving in this life never counts suffering as something to be, to be coveted or desired. But because, when we realize that we must die to that old man, we can say, yes, I will suffer and I will die to the old person so that I might know him, the resurrection to a new identity. Romans 6 sums this up better for us when it says we, we died with him in his death and were raised to newness of life in the resurrection. We're giving an entire new identity so that when God looks at you, he sees not you, but he sees Jesus, which means we can read scripture in a new way that the things that are said about Jesus are also true of us. And we look at a passage like Matthew chapter 3, where, where Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, and the spirit descends like a dove, and the father speaks from heaven. And he says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. This is my son or daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Only when we're found in Christ can that be said of you and me. Only when we relinquish anything that might be to our credit and receive the free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago on Mother's Day, uh, I woke my three-year-old son, Beckham, up. I said, Beckham, we have a mission this morning. Today is a day that we celebrate mothers. And so we're going to go to the store and we're going to get mommy some flowers. So we're talking about it on the way to the store. And I said, you, you can pick out the flowers, Beckham. I was kind of going for a gamble here that he wasn't going to choose the, you know, $100 thing of roses there. But uh, so we're there. And if you know Beckham, he had to smell and inspect every single flower in the place before he picked out the right one. And we're getting, getting on time late for church by this point. All right, we got to pick something out, Beckham. Daddy, I want to get these flowers. I want to get these. Come around the corner. He has this bouquet of, it's like spray paint, orange, half wilted, easily the ugliest flowers in the place. Okay, I'm a man of my word, I guess. We're going to get those flowers. Beckham comes home with those flowers. He runs into the living room triumphantly, holds up those flowers. Mommy, I got you flowers. I got you flowers. And she couldn't have loved them more. She, she took those flowers. She put them in a vase. She set them into, in, the, in the living room. And every time we walked past those ugly orange flowers for the next week, we talked about how beautiful they were. What a great thing to have done, Beckham. What is it that can make such ugly orange flowers beautiful? Alyssa didn't see those flowers. She saw her son, whom she loves, with whom she is well pleased. Brothers and sisters, the same is true of you. If you will give up that kicking against the goads of proving your worth by what you do, you can receive that true righteousness found in Jesus Christ only then. The sacrament we're about to partake in is a picture of that. We don't come with anything to bring. We say, we confess our sins and say, I have nothing by which to commend myself to God. We only receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It reminds us again of our forgiveness and our identity in Him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. 
Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandprez.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.